Well, our text for today is we've come now to the culmination of this series, Jesus Wins, the culmination of the book of Revelation. It's the culmination of all of human history that we find here in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at the first six verses together, and I strongly encourage you, if there is a Bible near you, please open up God's Word. Uh, if there's not one near you, you got a phone, open up your phone and find Revelation chapter 21. If you're using our Bibles here at church, it's found on page 1041. Page 1041. And as we open up God's Word this morning, we begin with a word of prayer. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. You are so kind. And you're so good to us to give us this revelation, showing us things that once were, and you're showing us things that are, and you're showing us at least a wonderful glimpse of what will be. And so through your word this morning and by your spirit, Lord, we pray that we would be changed, we would be transformed, we would be renewed within our spirits. Be with the one who dares to preach, to teach, to proclaim your word with all of us who are learning and growing in your grace. For we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. The book of Revelation for all of its mystery and all of its strangeness, the book of Revelation ultimately is all about a wonderful, abiding, transformative hope that we can have as followers of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is all about hope in Jesus Christ. And hope is a powerful thing. To have hope is life-changing. To not have hope is devastating. Maybe you've heard stories coming out of concentration camps during World War II of people who were there who had nothing greater than themselves, nothing to live their life for, nothing to look forward to, no hope, and they did not last very long. But those who had something bigger than themselves, who had hope, who were, had something to look forward to, they had a greater strength and a perseverance. Hope is powerful. But what exactly is hope? I came across a definition of hope many years ago now that I've shared with you in the past. It's one that I have found very helpful for me that I share with you today. Hope is a life-changing certainty about the future. Hope is a life-changing certainty about the future. You know, the word hope in English is sometimes a relatively weak word. Sometimes hope in English can convey uncertainty rather than certainty. Are the Broncos going to win a week from today? Some people quite definitively and said no. Are the Broncos going to win? Oh, I hope so. Oh, I hope so. 
It almost conveys an uncertainty, the English word hope, but the the biblical conception of hope is the exact opposite. It conveys absolute bedrock certainty of things that are to come. Hope is a life-changing certainty about the future. And there are three questions that we're going to ask and we're going to find real answers to here in Revelation chapter 21, all of which flows from this definition of hope. And those three questions that are before us today are these. First of all, what exactly is this future? What will your future be like, O Christian, here today? Secondly, how does knowing this future right now, how can that be life-changing and then thirdly how can this future actually be a certainty something that you are so certain of how can we know that for sure what is this future that is before us Christians how can knowing this future be life-changing And how can this future actually be a certainty? That's our focus. We're going to find these answers in the revelation that Jesus gives us here in chapter 21. We start with, first of all, what is this future? Oh, there's big questions that everyone should, every religion or worldview, every individual should should be able to ask. You know, why am I here? And what's my purpose? And where did I come from? And where am I going? Where are you going? What's that future? We see this in verses 1 to 4, if you're following along. This is what John writes. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. A new heaven and a new earth, John sees in this revelation from Christ. This is not only found here in Revelation, it's other places in the New Testament. The writings of the Apostle Peter, for example, speak about a new heavens and a new earth. And it's best not to think about this new earth as though this earth is totally annihilated and ceases to exist, and then out of the nothingness, God creates an entirely brand new earth. That's not the picture. It is a new earth because of the transformative power and glory of Christ himself. It is this earth, but this earth so transformed and so renewed that it is indeed a new earth surrounded with the glory of God himself. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea, the sea was no more. I read that and I get a little bit sad because I like seas, I like oceans. You know, one of the things that we loved about our nine years in Florida was the water. It's one of the things we miss out here. We love the ocean and seas and lakes and rivers. To think, is this, is this what John is seeing? That they're the new heavens, the new earth, and there's no water and there's no seas and no oceans? Well, no. Notice he says, the sea was no more. The sea. The, the, the imagery of a sea and of that water, especially in the Old Testament, conveyed the idea for, for the Hebraic mind, it was an image of chaos. It was the image of disorder and of brokenness and of disharmony and the darkness 
that sin brings into the world, the chaos and the death and the deadly nature of the seas. The sea was no more. And what is it that a sea or an ocean or expanse of water does? What what does an expanse of water actually do? Well, it separates one place from another place. The Atlantic Ocean separates the continent of Europe from the continent of North America. And when so John looks and he tries to put into human language what he is experiencing and seeing, he says, the sea is no more. In other words, that chaotic division, that which divides, the chasm, the separation between heaven and earth is no more. No more Division between heaven and earth, the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of humanity now are one and the same place. The new heavens and a new earth and all of the light and glory of heaven, the glory of God, his weight, his kavod, his significance breaks into this world and everything that is broken and everything that is wicked or dark or evil or sorrowful disease and death itself has no place to hide and it is gone a new heaven and a new earth it's what we're longing for but then it goes on what is this future going to be like verse 2 John says and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband this is the image of a city, the new Jerusalem, shining brightly. It says adorned, it says prepared as a bride. It's a city wearing a wedding dress. Coming down from heaven, it says for her husband. What is this new Jerusalem? What is this all about? This new Jerusalem prepared as a bride, that's you. That's us. It's the church. It's all the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament and all of the saints gathered in the room here today and we are prepared as a bride and oh, isn't that beautiful imagery that we are the bride and Christ is the groom and I've shared with you before, I remember my wedding day when I stood at the very front of the church and the doors opened and I had not seen Leah and I had not seen her dress and the doors opened and there she was and she starts walking down the aisle to me and I had the strategically placed clean next and I start dabbing my eyes and my wife didn't say suck it up Sally like some of the some of the other pastor's wives maybe have done <laughs> Micah Steiner uh, but Amanda Steiner uh, but I there she was coming to me and I was so overcome and to think that that is how Jesus sees you sees us and he's so excited He can't wait for us to be with him. And what does it mean? You are beautifully adorned. It means right now today, Christian, you are declared righteous in the eyes of God, but one day you will be perfectly righteous. Right now you are declared to be holy in the throne room of God, and that is how God sees you. You're declared holy, but one day you will be holy, and you will shine with the glory and the righteousness of God himself, and you will finally be the person that you want to be. It means for those of you with depression, those of you with crippling anxiety, those of you who still have guilt or shame over something maybe you did years ago, those of you who have addictions, those of you who have these besetting sins and you just can't seem to get over them and you keep doing them over and over and you're so tired and the guilt and all of that, one day it's gone. One day you will be free 
to sin no more. You will be that person you want to be. It will happen. Oh, and then he goes on. What is this future like? Verse 3. John says, and I heard a loud voice. This is the, the voice of Christ, glorious and powerful. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and again, this is Jesus speaking, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. With, with them, with them. Three times, did you hear that? Maybe you remember the opening sentences of John's gospel, which says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That is speaking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus and God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and their withness. This is a deep, deep, infinite intimacy and closeness. And Jesus now is saying, that intimacy that I have with the Father, you're going to have. You have it in part now, but one day you're going to have it in the fullness. You're going to be with God, and he's going to be with you. And this is what Jesus lost on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Son was forsaken, and he did that for you because he wants you to be with with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, that's the longing of your heart. That's what you're looking for. Every, in every career advancement, in every attempt to have a corner office, in every little bit of dollars, in every bit of a, a, a hug from another person, a relationship or the approval of others, this is what you're actually seeking. You want to be with your Creator and your Savior. And here John says, one day that will happen. And then verse 4, what is this future going to be like? It says, He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. The omnipotent, all-powerful hand of Christ, which holds the universe in the palm of His hand, and He reaches out, and He tenderly, you've ever wiped a tear away from someone's cheek or face, be it a a friend or a spouse or a child, you know how intimate that is. And the omnipotent hand of God reaches out and wipes away. Notice it says, every tear, everything that has ever caused you tears, everything that you ever thought maybe ruined your life, every dark day or sorrowful day you have ever had is now being completely and totally redeemed and he's wiping every single one of them away. In fact, in this moment, you're finally realizing that those nails and scars of your life didn't uh, ruin your life, but God was using them to save your life and to bring you to him. He's wiping every, every tear away. And then, what is this future like? He says, because death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Again, with the glory of Christ, death shall be no more. You ask me, Pastor Abel, Scott, are you afraid of death? And I will say to you, no. I can stand here today and tell you I am not afraid to die. I'm not afraid of my heart ceasing to function or my brain ceasing to function. I'm not afraid of the physical aspects of death, but what I am afraid of is having to say goodbye and the separation between me and those that I love 
with all of my heart. That's what I am afraid of. That is what you are afraid of. And here the image is death is no more. The separation is no more. And we are together. We are together again. And we're with Jesus. And that's the future. It's just a glimpse. Oh, but you see. Now secondly, how can knowing this future actually be life-changing? How can it change your life? Well, look, knowing what your future, if you're certain about a certain future, if you're certain about the future, it really can change your life in the here and now. Let me give you my illustration I use all the time. Two guys who are working, uh, they have a job. It's the worst job in the world. Use your imagination, whatever that is. The worst job in the world, and they're not going to get paid until the end of a year. They have to work a year, but then they get paid. And the one guy, worst job in the world, he knows at the end of that year, $15,000. The other guy knows at the end of the year, he's going to get paid $15 million. You think knowing what your outcome might be affect you in the present. Worst job in the world, $15,000 a year? What's that person going to be like? Bitter, disgruntled, will quit before it's all over. The person who knows they're going to get $15 million, look, they might have to grit their teeth. They might have terrible days, but they know at the end of this, I'm going to get $15 million. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And some days it's joyful, and some days they're just barely able to get through. But knowing their future gives them the ability to live their lives. And what is your future? We've just seen it. And remember the context. Who is... Let me use the German because my friend, missionary here from Germany, so I'm going to use my German, Pastor Gary Schuske from Trinity Lutheran Church in Frankfurt, Germany. The sits im Leben, the situation in life. What is happening? Why is Jesus giving to his people this revelation? Why is John writing this down? It was persecution. It was the Roman Empire. It was martyrs. It was thousands of Christians being killed and sent to the Roman arena. And history records for us the power. Jesus says, I want my Christians in the first century and the 21st century, by the way, to know this future because it will give them hope and the ability to keep going. And history itself records for us the unbelievable power knowing this future gave our brothers and sisters in the first century and indeed our brothers and sisters around the world today. Because look at what Jesus says, verse 5. Life-changing. He who is seated on the throne, again, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new, also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Isn't it? There's, there's humor here. John, write this down. You, you get a picture of John getting this, this revelation of what's to come, and he's like, whoa. And Jesus has to say, John, write this down. These words are trustworthy. They're there to write it down, John. I want my people of all generations to know this. Write this down. And so we hear this not just once. That's great to hear it once. But we need to be reminded every single day of what our future, your future, is going to be like. We bring it into our head and work it down into our heart. We bring it into our head and work it down into our heart and bring it in and work it down so it can begin to have a power to transform us. And notice what Jesus says right before that. He says, Behold, I am, present tense, making all things new. I am making all things new. It's a new heavens and a new earth, and Jesus is saying, I'm already doing it. 
I've already begun the work of restoration and of making the new heavens and a new earth. It began at the cross, and it began when the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty, and I'm alive again. That's when this process begins. And you know what this means? Let me, it means this. Jesus is already beginning this process. It means not only can you know what your future is and how that can change your life, but you can also begin to taste that future day even now. Not in its fullness, hasn't been fully consummated yet. It's partial, it's provisional, it's just a taste, but it's a real taste, a foretaste of the feast to come. He is already making things new, and how does Jesus do this? The principal way he does it is through his word and his sacraments, and it's worship. It's what we call divine service. We call worship the divine service because it's the divine, it's God, Jesus, who comes down to serve you. In this time of worship, Heaven and earth interconnect with one another. I know you can't see it. I know you don't always feel it. But if you could see the Holy Spirit, the power of God coming out of my mouth right now and into your ears, you would be terrified perhaps by what you saw. This is truly, and I'm, this isn't hyperbole or symbolism, heaven and earth interconnect in this time of worship. And so wouldn't you want to volunteer to help serve and worship as an usher or... My goodness, it's almost as if this was planned. Because when you serve as an usher and hand out outlines and help people find their seat or when you push the button to advance the screen or when you put out the bread and wine for this holy meal of Holy Communion, you're not just doing these simple physical things. God is truly, truly working through you to give his people a taste of what is to come to bring heaven and earth together. Why wouldn't you all want to sign up to serve in some way if you can? I'll see you after the service. <laughs> and let me wrap up this section by saying this. How can we know? How can knowing this future, tasting this future? Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm, the very end of that Psalm says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What is that talking about? It was an ancient Semitic custom, ancient custom, ancient armies doing war and battle with one another. And when one army was victorious over the other army, they would take the generals and the leaders and the strong and mighty men of that army that they defeated. They would tie them up. They would bind them. They would sit them down. Then they would take all of their enemies' spoils all of their provisions, their food, and they literally would prepare a table in the presence of their enemies. And they would sit there, and there's the general and the captain and the mighty soldiers, and they're all bound up, and they're eating their food, and they're like, oh, these are the best mashed potatoes. Mm -mm -mm. Don't you want some? Can't have some. You know why? Because you lost. We won, and you lost in your face. You would prepare a table in the presence of your enemies. That's what Jesus does for you today in this worship service. He is preparing a table for you of his own body and blood in the presence of your enemy doubt, in the presence of your enemy fear, in the presence of your enemy depression and anxiety, in the presence of your enemy your guilt and shame, in the presence of your enemy disease, your diagnosis, death of a loved one, in the presence of Satan himself, there is a table Christ prepares for you and he says as you come forward taste and see 
a taste of what is to come as you take and eat and take and drink. And it is Jesus declaring to you and to all of your enemies that are doing so much warfare within your heart and soul, they have lost and I have won. In your face, Satan. That's all that's happening here today. Okay, so that's what the future is and how knowing it and tasting it can change your life. But finally, how can we be really sure, certain, you know, that this is really going to come? How do we just know that it isn't just wish fulfillment? Well, look what Jesus says. Remember, he says, write this down, John, for these words are trustworthy and they're true. Jesus says, these things are true. Well, how do we know, you know, this holy book and these words claim to be true and the Quran claims to be true and the Book of Mormon claims to be true. How do we know which one is the right one, the right holy book? Well, look at how they were manufactured. How were they produced? I've shared this with you before. It's so important to remember. The Quran, one guy goes off into the desert, comes back and says, here it is. Here's the word of God. Believe it. The Book of Mormon, we love our Mormon neighbors, but Joseph Smith goes off in the woods, finds these golden plates, claims it's the Word of God, says, here's the Word of God, believe it, one guy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It wasn't just one guy who goes away and says, here it is. It was a community. It was thousands of people who were eyewitnesses to the birth. Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. To the birth, to the life, to the death, to the resurrection, to the ascension of Jesus Christ. They were there, they saw it, they wrote it down, thousands of people together. Which one is more likely to be more believable? And by the way, they were all willing to die because they were convinced that the Son of God had died for them and had risen and conquered death in the grave. So that's one way, and this is what Jesus says, kind of expounds upon in verse six. Jesus said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus here says what? It is done. Does that remind you of something that you heard Jesus say before on the cross, his words from the cross? It is done. He said, it is finished. In other words, Jesus is saying, how can you be sure? How can you be certain? It's because of his cross and again, his empty tomb. These things really happen. They're not just fairy tales or stories we try to tell ourselves. Real historical events. The tomb was empty. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your guarantee. It's the first fruit of your own resurrection and of this beautiful future. It is true. Easter is true. Christmas is true. And finally, he says, because maybe some of us still go, but how, do it, how can I be sure that it's true for me? Because you don't know my doubts, and you don't know what I've done, and you don't know what I continue to do, and you don't know the sin that I struggle with. You don't know, and how can I ever obtain that? Look at what Jesus says. We'll end here. Jesus says this to you today. He says, to the thirsty... I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty, I will give out of the spring of the water of life. This life can be yours. You say, well, what's the requirement? Jesus says the requirement, what your need is simply your need. Are you thirsty? Are you poor in spirit? 
Do you hunger and thirst for not your own righteousness, but for the righteousness of someone else, for the righteousness of Christ? Are you thirsty? Do you want this? And Jesus says, if you want it, it's yours. Without payment, because I have paid the price. Remember what else Jesus said on the cross? He said, I thirst. As he was being consumed from the inside out with all of your sin and mine and all of that guilt, he said, I thirst so that you today might know if you thirst, he gives you out of the spring of the water of life. It's yours without payment because he paid the price. Hope, what a powerful, wonderful thing. It's a life-changing certainty about the future. And we know from, the, from Christ's revelation that Jesus reigns right now and Jesus speaks and Jesus wins and he has won and his victory is your victory today by grace alone. And it's Jesus himself who prepares a table in the presence of your enemies today. That as you come forward to know, you hear Jesus say, we, I, but we have won, and this future is yours. To him be all the glory. Amen.